with me where Jesus is tempted by the devil in three ways. And I want to focus this morning on the human holiness of Jesus Christ. Now, you all know what New Year's resolutions are. They are ambitions. And New Year's resolutions can either be holy or unholy. Satan tempted Jesus in three areas. He tempted him in whether Jesus was satisfied with what God had given him or not. That was number one. Number two, he tested him with presumption. In other words, how to understand what God is doing in your life at this moment and try to get him to act on presumption instead of faith. And then thirdly, and we'll look at this this morning, sinful ambition, sinful ambition. Join me in verse 8 of Matthew 4 as we look at the third of the three temptations. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. We are all filled with ambitions. We are all filled with unholy ambitions as well. Like Salvador Dali, the great painter, he gloried in, in unholy ambitions. He described his ambition this way. At the age of six, I wanted to be a cook. At the age of seven, I wanted to be Napoleon. And my ambition has been growing ever since. But the highest ambition, rather than to be the ruler of the world, the highest ambition is to be like Jesus Christ. Meek, lowly, humble, forgiving, and loving. Now the last of these three temptations that we have, the temptation to ambition requires all of that to carry it out and to be successful and to fight it. You are reading here the pitting of the incarnate Christ against some incarnate form of Satan. What kind of form he was in is not told us. Satan, in this passage, and as always, filled with unholy ambition. Christ, as always, filled, all consumed by holy ambition. For example, verse 10, he says, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So you can see that Jesus refused to fulfill His ambitions sinfully, at the temptation of Satan. In the 1814 graduation at Yale University in New Haven, the speaker was a pastor, and he was not giving your usual, your life is only limited by your potential type of graduation address to the graduates. He actually gave a warning against unholy ambition. And I imagine he was never invited back. And what he warned against was the desire to want to be famous. In the words of that day, 200 years ago, to be distinct. And this is what he said. No passion and no pursuit is more absolutely selfish than the love of distinction. One's self is the sole object. And in this object all labors pursuits, and wishes go to fulfilling self. He could have been describing Satan. He could have been describing my heart and yours. 
And isn't it because we reject that that we absolutely adore and glorify Jesus Christ because of who he is by his rejection of distinction? Here he was, given a shortcut to gain the entire world. Hey, look, just fall down, make a worship of Satan, and you get it all. The easy way. But he rejected it all. So what, humanly speaking, kept him so pure, kept him from being tainted, from being spoiled, from marring his own confirmed holiness? What kept him and his ambition to be holy it was this, so that he could, at the end of his life, offer himself as a holy, unblemished sacrifice to God on the cross in order to forgive sinners of their sins. He rejected Satan and the unholy ambition for the greater purpose of pleasing God. Paul says of us in 2 Corinthians that we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. The book of Hebrews tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Psalm 24 asks this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Holiness is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. We are called to a holy love, to talk with holy speech, to think holy thoughts, so that when we are tempted, we won't fall and bring shame to the call with which we've been called. And Matthew writes these verses that we are looking at this morning to reveal the power of Christ's human holiness. I've divided this short section of only four verses into several different parts. We're going to go through the setup, the shortcut, the send away, the smackdown, and lastly, the service. And we'll go through each of those in the next few minutes as we take our attention now and we focus it on Jesus Christ and His human holiness, desiring for ourselves that we may be impressed by it, have our own unholy ambitions rebuked, and be fortified, strengthened in the desire to be holy ourselves. What a noble endeavor. So let's look closely at this passage. Now, it all has been started back in verse 1 where Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness immediately after His baptism. He has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And at verse 2 says He then became hungry and that launched Satan into his first temptation to test Jesus as to whether he could be satisfied with God's providence in his life at that moment when he's hungry and when he's out in the wilderness, Jesus passes that, as you might know. Then he is tempted immediately after that on being presumptuous. And hey, Jesus, if you want everybody to worship you, jump off the temple and it will make it happen. Because, hey, there's a verse out of the Psalms that says that's exactly what will happen. Jesus does not fall into the presumptuous activity of misinterpreting, misunderstanding, and testing God. And tells Satan, no, you cannot do that. You shall not test the Lord your God. Bringing us here, now at the beginning of verse 8, with Matthew writing, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is the setup. The setup. When Luke describes it in his gospel, he says that it happened in a moment of time. In other words, supernaturally. Somehow, Satan, with his given capacities, took Jesus in body and soul to a place called, in the text, a very high mountain. Now, there are no very high mountains in Israel. So he took Jesus outside of Israel, and I would suggest to you that it's the mountain just to the north, 
a super high 14,000 foot mountain just north of Israel called Mount Hermon or Hermon. I would suggest to you that he took them there. In ancient Israelite belief, testified in the Old Testament, this is the place where the demon rulers of the nations held counsel in order to argue against the Lord God, their Creator. So it would make sense that Satan would take him here and then offer to him as the leader in that council of all the kingdoms of the world. He has, by the way, that delegated authority at the present time as a result of our first parents sinning and us in them. Put yourself there for a moment. You are on a high mountain, and as it says in verse 8, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, all of which would transfer over to Jesus' account. You talk about what that old pastor mentioned, distinction. Jesus would have had it all. You would have had millions of people shouting, who's the greatest? Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the greatest. He would have had the acclaim of the nations. He would have had everything that they can offer, as the text says at the end, and their glory. And every one of us in our hearts this morning is grateful that he did not succumb to this temptation. But every one of us, if we could have been there and had this presented to us with its majesty, with its power in a moment of time, I bet we would have succumbed to it if it would have been offered to us. How different, right, Jesus is. So you have Jesus. Here he is. He's a small time man from a small time place in some small hills of northern backwoods Palestine. And he's hungry because he's gone 40 days and 40 nights without food, water. And here he is. He's brought to this and he's granted you can have all the lands, you can have all the capitals, you can have all the armies, And you can have millions of slave worshipers throughout the world. If that is too beyond your reach, imagine this. Imagine what, if it had been you, how much wealth would have been deposited into your bank account and how you could have had anything you wanted. Everything would have been given to Jesus. Economists have tried to calculate how much wealth is in this world. When they add up physical money like (coughs) paper bills or coins. It comes out to about $5 trillion. Then they look at the money that is in banking accounts, like checking accounts, and that comes in around $20 trillion. Then they add up savings accounts, CDs under $100,000, and that figure is around $40 trillion. And then they go to institutional money market funds, long-term deposits, stuff like that, $75 trillion. And that doesn't even include land. That doesn't include real estate. That doesn't include works of art. All of that would have been owned by Jesus and whom he de- decided to delegate it to. Everything was offered to him. All your financial problems wiped out in a moment of time. Just bow down and worship Satan for a moment. When we call Jesus the Christ, we actually blend two realms together, the religious and the political, or the religious and the governmental. The Christ is the one world ruler figure who owns them both. Now, In this temptation, Satan is only offering him one of those, the governmental, total governmental control of the world, while Satan holds on to the more important, the religious. All you have to do, Jesus, is fall down and worship me. 
And that is why in verse 9, he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan gets the religious realm. Jesus gets the political military realm. But Jesus, whose ambitions were certainly to be the Christ and therefore to be the ruler of the world, not just governmentally but religiously as well, submits his ambition to the Father's will and timing. He will one day rule this world. He may come back in 2017. But he will have this world, but he's not willing to have it by Satan's hand. So he rejects him, even though Satan has dangled this in front of him in the most attractive and sensually impressive manner possible, in a moment of time and all their glory. So that's the setup. That's the setup. Next, we go for where Satan tries to set the hook, the shortcut. That's verse 9. I just read that. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, the shortcut is actually temporary. Actually, the words fall down and momentary refer to something that is just quickly done. The idea of do it once and it's over. It isn't you have to continually do this or all the time you have to do this. But of course, when you understand what worship is, worship is the activity of offering yourself as a slave to the deity. So if the deity is Satan, you are offering yourself to be his slave. Satan, of course, doesn't mention that little part, but that is what you do. When you come to worship Jesus Christ, you come to offer yourself to him as his slave, as with anybody who worships any deity in this world. Now, Jesus is being offered the very best the world can offer in toto. He isn't being offered a Lamborghini. He's being offered a Lamborghini factory. He's being offered everything that can possibly be given. One man makes this astute observation. What the devil offers Jesus is worldly power, control plus splendor. The premise is that power is possessed, in this case handed over by the devil to Jesus if he agrees. Along with the possession of power goes self-glorification and splendor, palaces, rich clothes, servants and slaves, gold, hanging gardens, and women. All of it then would come to Jesus if he just made a momentary offer of himself to this gloriously looking being named Lucifer and fall down and worship me. What a shortcut to get most of what he wanted at a time when he's weak. Jesus, of course, recognizes it as unholy ambition. He has a higher ambition to worship God in holiness, a godly ambition. Satan offers to you, even as he offered to Jesus, Whatever you really want in life, you are not a mystery to him. He has been watching your parents and your grandparents and so on for thousands of years. He can look at us or have his his underlings look at us and know what it is that tempts us. And it isn't all that mysterious. There's only really a few things. And he can offer that to you in some form or some measure in some little way, to make some part of your life easier, quicker, nicer, happier. And certainly, he will always appeal to your heart that if you do something his way with compromise, that he will reduce the amount of suffering and pain that you experience. You know, it's like he says, like skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his skin. We are so weakly beings that touch a man 
and cause them pain. And it's almost like you have them then in the palm of your hand and you can make them to do whatever you want so long as you relieve his pain. So if it's physical pain, if it's emotional pain, if it's family pain, if it's loneliness pain, whatever the pain is, if he can alleviate it by some compromise, some shortcut, it's very attractive to us. We may not be wise enough to say, is this a holy ambition or an unholy ambition? Because often our ambition is just to get out of pain, especially us men. Just let me have some peace instead of dealing with something in righteousness and truth. How easy it is for us to go in the path of compromise. But not Jesus. He wasn't afraid of suffering nearly as much as he was afraid of sinning. And so, if you will learn this year to replace unholy ambition and to be able to recognize it in yourself with holy ambition, you will have a tremendous year. Let's move on in the text. Let's go to the next part of it, what I call the, the send away. That is at the beginning of verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan. Another translation says, Be gone. Another translation, King James says, Get thee hence. I like one translation. It's one of the new modern ones. They go, it just says, Get out of here. <laughs> In the original language, there's just one word. Leave. And I like that because I think it shows greater power. You know, it's one thing to say, get out of here. It's another thing to say, leave, and then have the other being believe it, do it. And that's what happens here, because it says at the beginning of verse 11, then the devil left him. So it shows Jesus here having power over Satan. Now this particularly would have shocked the original recipients of the Gospel of Matthew, who were Jews. They would have known no one has power over Satan except for God. Now you might remember last week when we were together on Christmas Day, we looked at Luke chapter 1, where Jesus was called by the angel Gabriel. When he went to Mary, he's called that holy thing. That holy thing. It sounds almost dehumanizing to us, doesn't it, to call somebody a thing? But that's what he's called by the angel Gabriel because it was meant to separate out Jesus from all others. Jesus had the power of holiness. From the instant of his conception by the Holy Spirit, his humanity possessed a different genome. He wasn't different than you or I in his humanity, but rather in his substance. He was maleness, but without sin. He was generated in his humanity by the Father through the Spirit in the Virgin to be fully male, but not having been generated by a human dad, he was without sin. Original sin, ongoing sin, indwelling motives for sin, and so on. So he was exactly like you as a human being, different if you're a female. He was male, but having not been generated by a human father, but rather generated by the, by the Father of lights, the eternal Father, he was therefore different in his substance than you and I. He had no sin, which is why in the King James Version of Luke one thirty-five, Gabriel says, Therefore also, Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, because he retains the generation that he has always eternally had from the Father. So the child to be born of her was not merely to be good, 
He was far above that. He would be free from sin in its entirety, in his humanity, from conception, and for the humanity that he would carry the rest of his life on earth, and then, of course, in his glorified humanity that he has forever and ever and ever. So the decision to become a human being was one that was fraught with temptation. And in a manner, he was like Adam, who also had no indwelling desire for sin. But Jesus was made in such a way that his substance was different, and therefore had the power to resist everything that Satan could throw his way, whereas our first parents, without the capacity, tumbled, fell, and the race with them. Now, when you understand the substance of Jesus Christ, it means that his emotions were holy, his will was holy, his mind was holy, And crucially, his body was holy from birth all the way to sacrifice, all the way to glory, which we have to learn from because his holiness was not consisting of passivity. His life was not merely about avoiding sin. Here he is deliberately being attacked, and deliberately counter-attacking. He hasn't courted it. It has come to him. But having come to him, he is not avoiding it. He is dealing with it. Is there application here for you and me? You see, his holiness was strength in perfect freedom. He had indwelling holiness and could act upon it, even as you and I do through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so it energized Jesus' heart, his soul, his mind, his emotions, so that he as a whole man could then attack sin and repel it and not do it. And not merely be a passive person, but active in his holiness. Absolutely critical to our salvation. That he merely wasn't passive in holiness, but he was active in holiness so that both active and passive holiness could be credited to us so that we could have the full righteousness of God credited to us, beloved. Another way to say it is this. Holiness motivated Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you That's probably where we need to be because we fight holiness because the truth is that for every one of us, holiness brings suffering. Fighting against sin is suffering. Don't go out and try to do the stuff that some people do where they court human sin in the public square They don't fare well after a while, but certainly do fight indwelling sin internally and certainly do when the providence of God brings sin into your sphere. And you must confront and you must speak and you must fight and you will suffer. Paths so often of Satan in our hearts is so frequently laden with kind of rose petals, comfort, and long sleeps, and vacations in Aruba, and comfortable cars, and a bank account that could take care of us for years. That's the idea. Holiness means, man, I, I may not have any of that. Uh, I maybe really lonely. Uh, I may be greatly misunderstood. I may be hated. I may lose friends. I might lose my job. 
I might lose my house. I might lose my spouse. I might lose everything on this world. So no wonder when we start a new year, our resolutions are all about looking better and feeling better, a lack of suffering. But I would like you to look at the text this morning and reflect it, bounce it off your heart, work it out in your mind, and realize that while those are good things, to look better and to feel better, and I wish that for you, those are not sufficient goals for the Christian. They're really not. First of all, they can't bring you lasting joy and satisfaction. They will typically bring you injuries and letdown at some point. If not now, later. Holiness, on the other hand, can never let you down. It will bring you peace of mind. It will bring you inner strength. It will bring you comfort on your pillow as you lay your head at night. Holiness will bring you into fellowship with a very special and select group of people who have a likewise motive. Holiness will enable you to read the Bible and have the words jump off the page at you. Holiness will enable you to be meek when you are stepped on and crushed. Holiness will enable you to be able to close your mouth when you would like to yell out and scream. Holiness will enable you to see sin when it's far away and be able to resist it when it's far away instead of having to wait until it's right up against you. I had a seminary professor who used to say, he was an old man, died recently, and he used to say, most of us Christians, we like to play in the mist. And he used the example of, think of a street and a sidewalk, and it's a foggy night, and you have the light coming down from a street lamp, and you can walk in the light of the street lamps from light to light, or you can step only a few feet away and walk in darkness. He says, most of us like to walk in between, kind of one foot in the darkness just to feel what it's like and to wonder, is it really all that bad? And one foot in the light, just in case things get too bad over in the darkness. I like that illustration. I thought that was a good analogy. We find that we want holiness, but at the price we're willing to pay, at the level we're willing to take it at, rather than the kind of ways that the Word of God speaks of. So all of this, then, I think it's a good time for us as it's New Year's Day, to reflect upon the great call of our lives as Christians, which is to be like Jesus Christ. And what better day to look at His human holiness? You see, uh, because He was so active in holiness, it freed Him. It freed Him to be able to do everything that He needed to do. Holiness motivated Him. And so he had the greatest freedom of all in life, to be the slave of God. And the slave of God he was. And being holy, he fulfilled his holy ambition by going to the cross, where he perfectly mingled God's love with holiness. The result was loving you in the totality of your awful sin and suffering in your place. And in that agony with sin's pressure, your sin pressure crushing in upon his soul, his holy soul, he reflected back on the purpose for why Gabriel said he would be that holy thing. The Gospel of John says this, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' higher ambition of holiness didn't take him up in the eyes of the world. It brought him down in the eyes of the world. But having been brought down to the very lowest place, even death on a cross, he became the Savior of the world. Now, that's not our call. But here's our New Year resolution as Christians. And here I want to offer to you a very direct and very clear application that applies to all of us. And it is this, I will not miss a Sunday of worship 
unless providentially hindered by God, not because of my sin. I will not miss a single Sunday of worship due to my sin. I mean, if God's providence is working itself out that I can't make it, that's one thing. But Satan would love for you this year to fall in upon yourself and to measure out your devotion to Christ by how you feel on Sunday morning, which for many of you is spiritually sometimes the worst time of the week, is it not? It's been a hard week, and you've been in a kind of a downward spiral. Sunday morning comes along, and it was, for some of you this morning, it was like the hardest thing to do was to come here. Hardest thing to do. You know, we don't know that, right? We don't see that in you, but you know it. I know it because I've been a pastor for about 20 years, and I struggle, too. That would be a great application, a great way to live, to be holy, to worship the Lord my God by going to church every Sunday with believers. See, humility indwells holiness. And the holiness of Jesus Christ was never clearer in Him humbly taking the road to the cross. It brought shame upon Him. It was heaped upon Him. And yet, in unflinching perseverance, He went there. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was scared of it. He was humanly scared of it. He wasn't being unholy. He went off and prayed, Father, if this cup can be removed, take it from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Maybe some of you even came here this morning because, truth be told, that's kind of where you were. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you went against your feelings. Well done. Really well done. Really well done. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. His humility and his holiness are by truth and by mercy things we share in. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Let me tell you, being handed over to death is, is no fun. It's no party. Being handed over to dying to who you are in your family. Your status is going down. Being handed over to death maybe in a trial that's coming to you physically. Maybe your job, you're being unjustly treated and you're being crushed. Maybe you're going through horrible things and everything inside of you is saying, man, I have to get out of here. It's like, and you're convincing yourself, there's no way God wants me here. And yet, it's exactly where God has you. We're exactly where he has you. You're being handed over to death for Jesus' sake in order that his life may grow within you and that you may know his awesome holiness. Now, Jesus' humanity was so holy after Satan's temptation, the Holy Spirit, according to the Gospel of John, descended upon him. Hold your finger here in Matthew 4 and make your way over to John chapter 3. I want to show you something. Maybe you've never seen this. John chapter 3. The context here is John the Baptist, our old friend. You know, the old locust eater guy? And John the Baptist, with words of gold penetrated like bullets into people's hearts, is speaking about the Christ. And it could be that he finishes his words in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Maybe John takes over 
at verse 31, John the writer of the gospel. But in this context, Jesus has just been baptized. Although not exactly described in the gospel of John, it certainly matches up with all the other gospels so that we know that is the case. Therefore, when John writes in verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He is speaking of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus without measure. This would be the time of baptism through his temptation and then into his ministry. The idea then of the phrase in verse 30, by the way, that's a full Trinitarian phrase right there in verse 30. People who say the Trinity isn't in the Bible, really? Everywhere in the Bible, you kidding me? It mentions all three members, he whom God sent, speaks the words of God, he gives the Spirit without measure. There's tons of these verses, by the way. The idea then of the Son of God in his incarnation, in his humanity, having the Spirit without measure, is that there was nothing hindering the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like Jesus in his humanity got a God-sized heaping of the Holy Spirit. You and I, in our regeneration as Christians, in our salvation, get a a human-sized portion, if you forgive me, of the Holy Spirit. And He comes to us, and He indwells us, and He encourages us. He fights inside of us against our indwelling sin, even as our indwelling sin fights against Him. And uh, He certainly gives us spiritual gifts so that we can use them for each other. And He certainly motivates us with love and mercy and desires to be gracious and kind and help to be sympathetic toward other believers. But with Jesus, he gives the Spirit without measure. That's why verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Phenomenal text right there. You can go back to Matthew chapter 4. So you have Jesus then, who here he is being tempted. He has the Spirit without measure. Everything that he is doing is in accord with holiness And then he has granted to us the desires to be like him. And he is our example. He is the one who has saved us, and he is the one who is our example. When the demons met him during his incarnation, they shivered and they begged of him, Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. To be holy is to be then empowered to separate from sin and from its power and its guilt, to be able to separate from sin aggressively and to experience deliverance from its guilt. He who sins feels guilt and therefore hides. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is what you and I do. We sin, we feel guilt, and we hide. But Jesus never sinned. So therefore, Jesus never, ever felt guilt, and therefore Jesus never, ever hid. Yet the Bible says that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet of course he was without sin. So Jesus did never had the filter of guilt through which he then talked to people, through which he did ministry, through which he spoke to religious leaders, through which any of his teaching came through which he then raised up disciples into apostles and into world changers. Everything that he did then was stripped of the filter that you and I have by permanent effect, Adam and Eve, and then our own sins of guilt and the web and the warp and woof of guilt through which our emotions are felt and our logic is sifted through, all through guilt. He had none. Those who knew him best all testified of his holiness. The Apostle John says that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Peter said, you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. His half-brother James, in his little epistle, calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Another half-brother, Jude, last epistle of the New Testament, just before Revelation, 
said, called Jesus our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior of the world was holy. Your Lord, who owns 2017, is holy. And He will lead you in holiness. The reason why the world uses His name as a cuss word umpteen billion times a day is because He was holy. And because what's holy has transcendent power. There is no other name under heaven that men use around the world as a curse word. I've talked to Muslims who use the name of Jesus Christ as a cuss word. Why? Because He alone is holy. And those who are His desire to have His holiness in them. But we have to move on. We have to move on. We've talked about the setup, the high mountain. We've talked about the shortcut. Hey, just bow down and worship me. We've talked about the send away where Jesus says, go, one word. Now let's go on to the the next truth here, the smackdown. Ready? The smackdown. The rest of verse 10. For it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. What I want to focus on, kind of phrase by phrase, is first, look back at verse 10 and look at the phrase, three-word phrase, it is written. This is intentional. Jesus says this. For Jesus, there is only one holy book. The original book of it is is written. Literally, it means it stands written, even as it was put down in ink on paper. It stands written as authoritative as unholy, as it first was when it was written. These three words gives you the entire theology of Jesus Christ toward sacred Scripture. It is written. Therefore, He is holy, and He takes what is holy, and He uses it against Satan. Nothing else would do, nothing else could stand, only that which is holy against the one who is eminently unholy. Then notice what Jesus quotes. He gives two commands. First, worship God only. You shall worship. Worship. This verse was originally given to the nation of Israel out in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is not selfish for God to command our worship. He is actually generous to do so because as we worship Him, we partake of His holiness. We attribute to Him His holiness, and He attributes to us and measures out to us, imparts to us a measure of His own holiness. So it is actually the kindest gift that God could give would be to call us to be His worshipers. And then this question here in verse 10. The question. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God. The question is, well, who is Jesus saying this to? Is He calling God the God of Satan, the Lord your God, Satan, or is Jesus referring to Himself? No, Jesus is referring to Himself, not to Satan. Satan is not being called to worship God here. This was written to Israelites, of whom Jesus is, of course, one. He's actually referring to himself. He's speaking it to Satan as the reason for why he will refuse the offer of all the kingdoms of the world. Because there stands something written on a piece of parchment from 1,400 years ago that so stands as so fundamentally holy that my entire heart and mind is so guided and I am so submitted under it and it has worked itself into me that it is such a part of fundamental truth about what life is that I can do no other. Fundamentally called by something that stands written. Something that doesn't change from day to day. Something permanent. Something stronger than the mountains themselves. It stands 
written. His mind and his conscience are bound to the Word of God. He's like Ezra, the Old Testament scribe, of whom it is said that he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And then lastly, in verse 10, Jesus says, And serve him only. That refers to formal public worship. That's not privatized worship. This is formal public worship. This is not do whatever you feel like. Go ahead in whatever way you want to worship him. Go ahead, make it up. He'll be really impressed. He'll make you feel good. No, this is quite the opposite. Among the Israelites, God had put down in decrees and ordinance of the very specific steps by who could worship him in certain ways and who could not. Those who transgressed were often killed. He had specific ways by which he could be approached. He had a specific day by which he could be approached. And for the ones who approached him, they had to approach him in a holy manner, meaning according to what he had written. Now, obviously, most of that was obliterated in the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who brought us into the age of the new man, the new covenant. But there are still realities that apply to us, such as Sunday being the Lord's day. And if we are to serve him and serve him only, as Jesus speaks of here, then we must gather together. We must do so in the manner that which God has ordained. This particular part of the verse is actually from a later section in the book of Deuteronomy than the prior part of verse 10. And this is from a part where Moses is commanding the people to serve God. He is preaching on how great God was to take the people out of Egypt, out of the land of deprivation, and bring them to a place of divine favor among the nations. And it is an exhortation then that based on what God has done for you, you now must remain faithful to Him for the rest of your life. It has to do with formal worship, which is why the Westminster Confession, one of the greatest Christian documents written in history, says this, and it's so good for guiding our thinking, says this, "...the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and does good unto all." and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So far, so good. Everybody can sign up. But the Westminster Confession goes on to say this, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Boy, take my blood and sign me up. That is good stuff. And May I just make one other application on this verse for you and me? Verse 10, it's this. Verse 10 proves the priority of the religious over the political. It it proves that we are not to give our heart to affairs of state. Big important thing at this time. Always a big issue. That which is so presented before our eyes as the all-important thing of life is to be subsumed under worship the Lord your God and serve Him only and let it reside on the dirty ground where this stuff rightly belongs. The nations of this world are in ownership by an evil, malevolent being, including our own. And it will prove itself to be such. I can promise you that. Never has there been any world power that has proven itself to be otherwise. Well, we've certainly walked a path together, have we not? We've looked at the setup in verse 8. On a very high mountain, we've looked at the shortcut The send away, get away. We've looked at the smack down now in verse 10. Now let's close it off with the final thing, the service that is given unto Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. The devil left him and 
Behold, that's meant to grab your attention. Behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Angels served Jesus. Then it says, like in Luke's gospel, it says, then Satan left him until an opportune time. Actually, the devil never ever showed himself once ever again to Jesus, so far as is revealed in Scripture. The devil never showed his own proud, disgusting self to Jesus ever again, except through men of whom he had a multitude willing to do his will. In other words, that's how thorough this smackdown was. Satan took off, personally never came back, so far as we are know in sacred scripture. But the question is, where is Jesus? Kind of like the where is Waldo thing here. Verse 11, where is Jesus? He's still on that very high mountain. The devil left him. Jesus is outside Israel on a very high mountain. He's tired. He's extremely hungry. He has been spiritually assaulted. And the only time angels ever come to Jesus to help him is when he's on the brink of death, like the Garden of Gethsemane. And they come. You know, he was close to it, going to the cross. He said, I can call 12 legions of angels. They'll come deliver me from this. You know, 72,000 angels can throw a hurting on a bunch of rascally Romans. But they didn't. They did here. It says they began to minister to him. They, they fed him. I'm sure they gave him medical care. I'm sure they comforted him, whatever they said to him. You know, I, you know what they did, right? They worshiped him in his humanity. They had to. How could they not? Listen. Holiness is often the path to suffering and submission. It will hurt, but holiness will heal you as well. Holiness will heal you in your heart. You'll be different. You'll be made whole. The effects of Adam's fall in your life will be to a staggeringly large Reality reversed. You'll be healed. Don't you love the verse of Scripture that says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Therefore, Jesus Christ understands your human suffering better than anyone else. So here is a worthy goal for all of us this new year, to refuse to satisfy our ambitions sinfully. Godly ambition is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But you are going to be offered shortcuts this year. Maybe you're already taking shortcuts and you need to stop. There are far more ways in this world to cheat, to hide truth, and to steal than there are to do things right. Shortcuts pollute. Shortcuts defile the conscience. A shortcut is a goal to a lie because it pretends to get you something that you earned when in fact you didn't. It was gained by deceit. As the apostle says, put to death the deeds of the flesh and put to death the deeds of the flesh by being ambitious for personal recognition, for exaltation in the eyes of men, for all of your wants to be satisfied. I promise you that will not heal your heart, but holiness will heal you and then really make you excited for heaven. Join me in prayer. Our Lord, we greet this new year then with a res resolved purpose to grow in holiness. We'll sin this year. Oh, there's no doubt about that. But that is not the end of every story. We shall rise from it. We shall confess it. We shall repent we shall grow in holiness. Let us be like those who go to worship the Lord their God, even when they are dressed in rags, so that we may grow in holiness and we may grow in love for you.
Thank you, Lord, for this time and for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we thank you. Amen.